This morning, our lead pastor, Kevin Larson, is going to be preaching from Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Um, you can follow along with me as I read God's word beginning in Galatians 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, who's eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we have the opportunity to gather all together outside this morning. Um, I pray for Kevin as he preaches this morning that he would be filled with the Spirit and that he would speak the truth to us this morning. And I pray that you will soften all of our hearts to hear your word and your truth um, and that we would just lay down our pride and our idols and be attentive to what you are um, teaching and doing in our hearts this morning. And I thank you just for your word and your son. Let me just say, amen. Thanks, Hannah. Sounds like I'm coming through. Um, 2020, huh? What a year. And year and a half, I guess we're looking at now. But 30 years from now, um, what do you think will come to mind when we think about the year 2020? Well, no doubt we're going to be talking about the pandemic. That's obvious. Um, Anthony Fauci will probably go down in the history books, that's pretty certain. But there's another name that we'll no doubt remember, for sure, and it's the name George Floyd, right? We're never going to forget the, the protest that came after Officer Derek Chauvin slowly pressed the life out of Floyd over eight iPhone-recorded minutes. Of course, the story still is continuing. The civil suit just wrapped up. The criminal trial awaits. But so many are saying, yet again, that something has got to change. But here's one thing that I think many Americans would also say. Christianity, at least the, the kind talked about on social media, if anything, could be standing in the way of that change. Because they might say, hey, don't, don't the... People that are, are claiming to be Christians, don't they seem sometimes to be the most vocal against racial justice in America today? I think many would say that. They might say that Christianity is part of the problem and that it's been that way throughout American history. Now, well, I can understand that and weep over that and beg forgiveness from my brothers and sisters, sisters of color for that, I have to say, that evil, that stuff does not come from Jesus. It's not found in the story of Scripture, and we see that so clearly here in this passage, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 today. Now, this is the second week that we've looked at this passage, so lest you think I'm glossing over a few things, go back and listen to Jeff's message from last week, last week that's online. But this week, I want to look at it from this angle, how it shows us the pathway to racial, really ethnic reconciliation. We've got to know some of the background here. The Apostle Paul is writing here to Christians in Galatia, 
modern day Turkey back in the late 40s AD. And he's trying to give them a wake up call. And it is a message that we very much still need to hear today. Christians there had been turning from the, the good news of Jesus that Paul had labored to preach. They're once again learning on, leaning on their own works, their own good deeds, instead of Christ's finished work. And Paul is unloading on them. He's giving them a spiritual tongue lashing of sorts. He's concerned about false prophets there that have tried to turn them away from the truth in Jesus. And he says this in verse 8 of chapter 1. That even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel, contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. Let him go to hell. That's what really Paul is saying there. And then he keeps on railing, of course, in love. But soon thereafter, Paul gets to the story that we, we see here. He's among the Christians in Antioch, which was his sending church for his mission to the Gentiles. And Cephas, that's another name for Peter, he leads a bunch of people astray. And Paul calls him out, he calls him out right there in front of everyone. Well, why is that? What's going on? Well, there was this massive divide in those days between Jews and non-Jews. That's what Gentile means. John Stott, the scholar, explains it this way. He says, It is difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf which yawned in those days between the Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles on the other. Not that the Old Testament countenance such a divide. It affirmed that God had a purpose for the Gentiles. By choosing and blessing the Jews, his, he intended to bless all the families of the earth. Genesis 12, 1 through 4. The tragedy was that Israel twisted this doctrine of election into one of favoritism, being became filled with racial pride and hatred, despised the Gentiles as dogs, and developed traditions that kept them apart. For example, no Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile. All familiar intercourse with Gentiles was forbidden. So it's kind of like today, I think, what we see with the church. There's this divide that's deep and wide, and the people of Israel, they are supposed to be leading the way, but they've gotten completely off track. Jesus comes along, he tears down the wall between the two groups once for all. He goes about creating this new people of God that include Jew and Gentile, and Peter learns that from him, living it out with him. He's enjoying that, he's pursuing that, that is, until some legalistic Jews show up. He's sitting there, he's eating with Gentile believers, which is a symbol of community, of friendship, until some men who come along, who think along these lines. Hey, those Gentiles over there, they haven't been circumcised. They don't follow the food laws like we do. They don't keep our Jewish holidays. They're bad, and therefore Peter should not be eating with them. Now, Peter knows none of that's true. None of that stuff matters anymore because of the coming of Christ. But Peter here ends up switching tables, and Paul lovingly lights him up. And here, what this is functioning in this, this book to say is this. Church of Galatia, don't even let an apostle lead you astray from the gospel. The very good news of Jesus is at stake. And what is going on in that table? And therein, he instructs them and instructs us about gospel reconciliation. Here's my big idea this morning. Only Jesus, only Jesus frees us to enjoy 
and pursue the reconciliation he brings. It's his intention that gospel ethnic reconciliation would be enjoyed and pursued by us. But before we get to that, there's a couple of core concepts that we have to understand. Core concept one. Back in the day, I used to play some saxophone, and I was briefly part of the marching band. The snare drum would, would go about setting a cadence, and we would march in step, or at least we would try to, in parades across Missouri. But sometimes, you know, you'd lose concentration, or maybe your footing, and you'd find yourself off beat. So you, you, you're supposed to be going left, 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 right, left, and you'd find yourself right, right, left, right, right. And you'd have to do this kick step, and some of you know what I'm talking about, to get back on beat. What is Paul saying here? He sees Peter's conduct as he joins in with these other guys, and he says in verse 14, their conduct was not in step with the gospel. So hear me, friends. There are some ways that we can live that not only make Jesus look bad, they do not fit with, they do not flow from what he came to do. And that's Paul's point that he's making. And realize this, the gospel is a message. It's meant to be proclaimed, yes, but it's also meant to be lived. There is gospel conduct that flows from gospel belief. There's a gospel culture that's supposed to come from gospel doctrine, but it is so easy to get off track from that, to get off beat, even for the apostle Peter. So first, it's possible to live in such a way that we're out of step with the gospel. Many ways, but in the matter we're talking about here. Second, some things, though, are very much in sync with the gospel, and racial reconciliation is one of those things. Some people today would say this. They would say, Kevin, just come on, man, just, just preach the gospel. You know, don't talk about the social issues. It's not. It, it's not a gospel issue, but I would say they're wrong, really wrong. And I'm not just saying this is a conduct problem. This is actually a belief one as well. John Piper puts it this way. One of the central cadences of the gospel walk is the breaking down of ethnic hostilities and suspicions and the impulses of unity and harmony. Now, think about the story of Scripture with me. Maybe you haven't heard it this way, but we talk about this way in Chorus all the time. Four acts. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Take creation first. The Lord creates man and woman in his image... And I'll say there's one race, and that's why I prefer to use the word ethnic. One race, but as Paul preaches in, in Acts 17, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So God takes that original man and woman and creates all the diversity that we see. That's God's good creation. Okay, creation. Fast forward to the end, to restoration. Revelation 7-9 speaks of this great multitude that one day we're going to see from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That is where everything is going. All hostility will be gone. Unity forever before Jesus. That's obviously not where we're at now, right? So creation, fall. So sin entered the world. One of Adam and Eve's sons almost immediately killed the other one, and there has been hostility ever since. 
and especially among ethnic groups. Jesus came along, though, redemption, dying for our sins so that we could be made right with God, but also so that we could be made right with one another. There's a vertical component to salvation, us and God. There's a horizontal component between us and each other. Jesus came to bring that. Revelation 5, 9, again at the end of the story, puts it this way. Christ came to purchase the people for his Father from every tribe and language and people and nation. So Jesus died to bring us together with his Father, with one another. He doesn't just want diversity. That's a word that we use a lot today. It's a good word. But he doesn't just want that. He doesn't want lots of people, different types of people together. He wants reconciliation. He wants people that were at odds made one again. And in a fallen world, this is difficult. We know that. We'll fall far short of what it's going to be like in the new heavens and the new earth. But through the Spirit's power, it is still something to be enjoyed and also pursued. That's where I want to turn now. This ethnic reconciliation between black and white, Asian, African, Latino, Middle Eastern, European, all nations, this is something to be both enjoyed and pursued by us. First, it's to be enjoyed. Some would say, hey, Kevin, um, why are we focusing on the, our differences? I mean, shouldn't we aspire to be colorblind? But hear me, church, moving that direction moves us away from our joy. Imagine if our world didn't have all the diversity of topography and vegetation. Or if our food all looked and tasted the same. You know, it was just made for utility just to give us energy, but there was no texture, no color, no flavor. It wouldn't be good. What joy we would miss out on. Thankfully, our creative and kind God didn't choose to do things that way, and he did not make us colorless, and he does not want us to be blind, right? That disrespects, that dismisses people. It dishonors God, and it robs us. Speaking of food, remember what Peter's doing here. Before he's interrupted by these guys, verse 12 says he is eating with the Gentiles. He isn't just ingesting food. He's enjoying fellowship around a table. You may not have thought about this, but meals are important. They're an important part of God's purpose for us. I mean, we're happy about that, right? We see this in Israel. We see this in the church. We see a Passover feast. We see the Lord's Supper. We see the early church gathering in homes, breaking bread, studying God's word. We see Jesus going out, mingling with the least, the last, and the lost, saying to them, I value you. I want to sit down and eat with you. What do we look forward to at the end? A big wedding feast. The food is no doubt going to be great, but the fellowship in front of Jesus is the point there. But we were made for community and for diverse, reconciled community. Eternal relationships with people that are not just like us, that is God's goodness to us, church. And don't forget, it, it also reflects his glory. I, I, I hinted at that. I want to explain that. It showcases the beauty of his purposes in creation. It shows him to be a creative 
beautiful God. And it also puts the eternal spotlight on the wisdom of his work of redemption because it makes his gospel look even more marvelous. It makes his son even look more beautiful and powerful as men and women who would never sit at table together if not for the work of Jesus, do so breaking bread with grateful hearts. It's been good to be back with my missional community. Those are the smaller groups that get together at Karas. But it's good to sit around a campfire with someone from Nigeria and Taiwan, India, Tanzania. What a gift from Jesus for our joy, and we cannot miss that. But let's also run after it. Second, this is to be pursued. Some would say to me, they would say, Kevin, we, we don't need to be talking about this, man. Just preach the gospel, preach the message, let God change hearts. Now, I've tried to say that reconciliation is part of the gospel, but hello, people, you know, preaching this kind of gospel that lacks this component has not caused this to magically appear, right? We must pursue it as we see here in this passage. Let's think about the background of this story. Who are we talking about here? Peter is the head of the apostles, right? He's such a big dog that people through history have tried to say he's the Pope, right? The first Pope. I don't agree with that, but he's a big dog. He is obviously a Christian here, and he has trouble grasping this. Second, if you read Acts 10, Peter literally has to hear a voice from heaven three times, and then he's still relatively clueless. Finally, after a Gentile man who's been visited by an angel helps him kind of put the pieces together, he gets it, but he really doesn't because here he is, we hear about in Antioch in Galatians 2, he loses the cadence and he walks away from the table and he even leaves a really solid guy, Barnabas, astray in the process. You see, as sinners in a fallen world, this isn't easy for us, for any of us. Not just in, in America, but, but everywhere. You know, I've spent a decent amount of time in Japan. There's major issues, Japanese and Chinese, right? This happens everywhere. It is something that has to be worked for. It has to be fought for. It has to be pursued. We have to make an effort to draw near to people who aren't like us. And we at times must also call out those who work against it. Risking friendships, questioning authority. And that's what Paul does here. He has to walk up to Peter and say, Hey man, you're out of step here. You're being a hypocrite here. And that's not easy to do. We have to sit at the table. And again, it's for joy. But we also need to make room for others there. We come and share what we have, but we also have to listen and learn. We let others have the floor and even take the lead, and that doesn't come naturally to us. Jamar Tisby has written this, this book that's called How to Fight Racism, um, and he lays out three pursuits if we really want to get anywhere in the American church. It's easy to remember ARC, Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. You know, it's easy. Awareness easy outline, not easy to do. We have to understand what's going on, awareness, where we've been, right, what God wants. So we have to educate ourselves. We have to talk to people. We have to learn. 
relationships. We have to build friendships with people unlike us. We have to create spaces where more and more of that can happen, but people we can get to know that we can learn from and converse with if we want to make progress. Commitment. We cannot just try as hard as we can to not personally be racist. We need to work against racism, as Peter does here, not only in the church, but also in society. Racism is not just an individual thing, an individual choice. It's a systemic thing. It's around us. Therefore, we're not just trying to pursue reconciliation. We're, we're seeking to pursue justice as well. In his book, Center Church, Tim Keller gives three aspects of the gospel that I think help us so well to live it out, but I think it also helps with this topic. First, upside down. Upside down. The upside down nature of the kingdom. Jesus, if you didn't know, he didn't come on the horse like a conquering king. He came on a donkey. He turned power on its head. He preached a kingdom with the opposite values of our world. And this must transform how we see people unlike us without the privileges we have and should move us to do something about it. So upside down. Second, inside out. So Christ offers this gospel that goes far deeper than the superficiality that we see in these religious leaders here. It changes our hearts, our, the core of who we are, and that overflows in our actions. We should be the people most willing to go deep, to check our hearts, and work out the things that don't pulse with the heartbeat of the gospel, no matter how painful it would be. So upside down, inside out, and third, future back. If one day we will be resurrected and everything around us will be made whole, we should be those who work to bring that future reconciliation, that future justice into today. We shouldn't be the people bucking against it. No way. So I'll move on. But we don't just enjoy this reconciliation, we pursue it no matter how difficult, no matter how scary it is, and that leads to my, my next point. We have to pursue this reconciled community, this future kingdom in the face of fear. In the face of fear. Working for this. Sitting at the table, bringing others with you, it's hard. It can be scary, can't it? We learn there things about ourselves that we don't want to learn. We have to humble ourselves. We will often get things wrong really wrong. Fighting for this, teaching others about this, even confronting others, those things are intense and even more difficult. It's led to a lot of hard conversations for us. It's led to people leaving us over things like this. I heard Professor um, Esau Macaulay, who's offered this book, who's authored this book, Reading While Black, he recently said this, you get heat from everybody when you love the Bible and care for justice. You get called a fundamentalist, you get called a liberal, but we cannot give up even then because this is too close to the heart of God. Why did Peter get up from the table? Well, it says there, verse 12, out of fear, the pressure around him was so strong. What did Paul no doubt feel when he called Peter out? Probably fear. 
Hey, remember, we, we tend to make Paul as, as the big dog. You know, he wrote more of the New Testament, yeah. But don't forget this. He's the new guy. He's the guy that's suddenly trying to kill the Jewish people, and now he's, he's preaching. He's the new guy. Peter is the big dog, and he has to walk up to him and say, You're way off base, brother. It can be hard, but God doesn't want us to just sit in that fear. He gives us his spirit. He promises his presence, and his gospel is so powerful. And that leads to the last point I want to make. We work through that fear and toward this vision through the power of the gospel. Some would say, hey man, Paul's not really, he's not talking about race here. He's not talking about ethnicity. He's talking about something else. He's talking about how we're made right with God, and Peter's confused about that. Now, I want to say you're you're partially right there, and we're going to hit on that in a future message. But as I've said, the Lord doesn't just make us right with him, but with one another, and that is really what Peter is walking away from there. But hear me say, that response, that objection, just doesn't go deep enough. It's, It's hovering too much on the surface. Because what's the root of racism? What for that matter, is sin even, aren't we so prone to find our identity in the wrong things? Like our work. Why are you working 80 hours a week? It's your identity. you got to get it right. Our possessions maybe, right? That's maybe another reason why you work so much. You, you have to have stuff. Maybe you have to compare it to other people. Maybe it's your, your status. But one way we so easily tend toward finding our identity is in our people, in our tribe, in our ethnicity. Keller puts it this way. For most people, then, race and culture are a kind of self-righteousness. We think of ourselves as the good one, good ones, not like those people over there. That means that we tend to make our cultural preferences, which are no more than that, preferences into moral absolutes and badges of honor. Friends, the, the message of Jesus, though, frees us from that. Now, again, again we're not trying to, to get rid of our identity and, and how God has made us, but we get our deepest, most ultimate identity in him and in this family that he's creating. And because of that, we have nothing to prove. We have nothing to defend. We can no longer view our neighbor as the other because we remember the amazing welcome that we've received in Christ ourselves. So the gospel gives us the vision for this community, but it also gives us the resources to get there. So back to where I started. Christianity is not the problem, no matter what you've heard. It's the solution. If I have a pile of materials, building materials in my yard, and you steal them and and build what looks like a house... I deserve some of the credit there. You're using my stuff. And people, people do that with the Christian worldview all the time. And definitely with this subject at hand. There's some things that are borrowed. Some things are gotten right. But that house will not stand without a foundation. And we need the gospel's heart. But we also need the gospel's power. Because only then will it last. And the Bible gives us those kinds of resources. One book I recommend that you read, we may do it as a read, one read at one point, Rebecca McLaughlin's book, Confronting Christianity. 
I might have quoted this before, but she destroys in that book this idea that, quote, Christianity is a white Western religion intrinsically tied to cultural imperialism. She says, no, quote, the Christian movement was multicultural and multi-ethnic from the outset. So from those originally reached by Jesus and his followers to the explosion of the church in Acts, the church started out diverse and Christianity traveled and reached new peoples and brought those peoples together. Christianity exploded in Africa long before any white missionaries went there. I don't know if you knew that. It's true. And today the church is booming in places like, and I'm talking exponentially, in in South America, in the Middle East, in Asia, in Africa. Soon China will become the largest Christian nation in the world. And I'm talking soon. Just a matter of 10, 20 years. She writes... Most of the world's Christians are neither white nor Western, and Christianity is getting less white and Western by the day. She then quotes a a professor from Yale, Stephen Carter, who speaks of this. He speaks of a difficulty endemic to today's secular left, an all-too-frequent weird refusal to acknowledge the demographics of Christianity. He says that makes people uncomfortable. Right? It's, it's more, there's easier targets out there. But he, he then warns, when you mock Christians, you're not mocking who you think you are. I heard of this professor one time that, that, that basically said, hey, I want you to picture a Christian. Okay, I want you to get this in your head. You've done those things before in classes. Picture a Christian. What do they look like? I'll give you a minute or so. Close your eyes. What's in your head? And he says, basically, if you're not picturing a middle-aged African woman, You're royally off. I mean, how instructive was that illustration? True Christianity, and not the kind that you hear shouted on TV, it gives us the resources to pursue diversity, but also unity and reconciliation. Macaulay talks about being raised in the black church, where he was taught faithfully that the Bible gives the pathway out of racism, that listening to the Bible leads to freedom. And it was the slaveholder, actually, that abused scripture to justify oppression. So then he goes off to university, and he gets around professors that say, hey, if we want to make, process, if we want to make progress on racism, we have to get away from that old book. We've got to get away from scripture. That's archaic. And they said that scripture is the problem. And Macaulay just said, I had to make a choice. Am I going to believe my pastor or my professor? It's not my desire. Let me be clear that you trust me, but trust the book that his pastor also pointed to. Don't believe lies that you hear, like the dude shooting up Asian women this week was, quote, a good Christian boy. No. Don't believe the dude with the horns in the Capitol had a clue about the Christian message. Those are lies those are definitively out of step with the gospel of Christ. Hear me, the Middle Eastern, Aramaic-speaking Savior, he sits on his throne, he'll one day make all things right, and he's also with us right now, his people, let us build a house together on the one true foundation, one in which everyone can live and flourish. Let's pray. God, um, 
We want our heartbeat to be with yours. We want to live um, in touch with, along with, just the glory that you've created in your image bearers. We just ask your help, Lord, that we would be faithful. We would be bold and courageous. And you might use us, Lord, to allow um, the gospel more and more to bring people together. We pray in Christ's name, amen.